I want to consider this morning, last week, of course, we looked at Mary and uh, her keeping all the things that she had heard and others had heard that had been reported to her and pondering them in her heart. And uh, so the first post-Christmas, if you would, response to Christ, uh, and we looked at deep thinking about the Lord Jesus. Uh, today, I want us to look at this man, Simeon, Luke chapter 2. And notice, if you would, beginning in verse number 22. And when the days of her, this is Mary, purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. This is day 40. If you read Leviticus chapter 12, this is day 40 after the birth of Christ. They brought him to Jerusalem, speaking of the Christ child, to present him to the Lord. Imagine that, the Lord being presented to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's interesting, if you look in the book of Leviticus, there, there was another sacrifice that was the one that was named, and yet in the allowance of God, two pigeons or turtle doves uh, for those who were especially poor could be used. This is a testimony to the economy of Joseph and Mary and the Lord Jesus. They were poverty-stricken folks. Verse number 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same was just and devout, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit, under the direction of the Spirit, is the idea. He came by the Spirit to the temple when the parents brought in the Lord Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. Then took he him up in his arms. Uh, you parents, young parents, imagine having this infant uh, just a little over a month old and a perfect stranger walking up and taking that baby out of your arms. That's what happens. He took him up in his arms and blessed God, verse 28, and said, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. What a key statement. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now notice this, verse 33. And Joseph and his mother, what's the word? Marveled. Marvel, they were shocked at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. He's looking 33 years into the future when Mary would stand at the foot of Jesus' cross and watch her son die. But this would all be done that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I'd like to preach a message this morning entitled, The Real Christ. The Real Christ. Let's pray. Father, I need your help today. I, I, it overwhelms me to think about the fact that the, the same spirit that was upon Simeon as an Old Testament saint in that transitional period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same Holy Spirit that was on Simeon now permanently indwells every born-again, blood-bought child of God. 
And he directs us and guides us. And Lord, I'm grateful for that. And I pray for his help this morning, both in my life as the human mouthpiece, the the delivery instrument, but then also I pray for the Spirit of God to be at work in every heart that is here, those who know Christ as Savior, that the Spirit of God would be showing them new facets and beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for any that's here this morning and is yet to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that the Spirit of God would be working in them to draw them to Christ lifted up on a cross as their substitute. And I pray these things in Christ's name, His precious name. Amen. His name is Mark Landis. And by my calculations, uh, he is 67 years of age. He is regarded by many, if you research his life, to be the most notorious art forger or counterfeiter of art in the history of the United States. Over a period of three decades leading up to 2008, he forged pieces of art done by some of the masters and then would disguise himself in some cases as a Catholic priest, in other cases as an eccentric family member. Uh, And by his own testimony, he is socially awkward and a diagnosed schizophrenic. But he liked the feeling that came with with giving a piece of art that the curator of a museum thought was a very valuable piece. And so he would paint fakes and counterfeits with his savant talent. And from for 30 years leading up to 2008, he would take these pieces of art to 50 different art museums in the United States and give them as a gift in honor of some deceased family member who actually never existed. In 2008, a detective in the art world and forgery became suspicious and began to examine some of these pieces, and the top was blown off the whole thing. Now, the reason that Mark Landis has never spent the first day in prison for all of his forgery is because he didn't ever sell any of the pieces. He gave away the fakes. He gave away the counterfeits, and he actually got a little bit of a kick out of duping professionals with these pieces of art. But here's the sad reality of it, is that it did cost those museums collectively millions of dollars in order to hire professionals to come in to tell them whether or not they had a real or a fake. There are a lot of people in our world in professing Christianity who have a counterfeit view of Jesus. In a sense, it's been given to them freely, but I want us to understand this morning that the wrong view of Christ costs dearly. On the other hand, the right view of Christ, as we look at Simeon and just draw some conclusions from his life, the right view of Christ brings rest and resolve and reason to life. In the midst of all of the adversities and all of the difficulties... The right view of Christ will bring rest and resolve and reason to life. I want to ask three questions of this passage as we analyze it for our sakes this morning and, Lord willing, to lift up Jesus. The first question is this, what was Simeon's view of Christ? Now, the first thing I want us to notice before we consider several aspects of his view of Christ is this, that information that he 
with the spirit of prophecy gave to them about Jesus was information that surprised Mary and Joseph. Now let that set in on you a minute. They had already, Mary and Joseph had already both been visited by angels. They had been visited by shepherds who had been visited by angels. They had had interaction with Zacharias and Elizabeth, who Elizabeth or who Zacharias had been visited by angels. They had already received a lot of earth-shattering information about Jesus before he was ever born and right after he was born. And yet the Bible tells us that information that Simeon gives to them marveled even his parents. I would also say this, when you consider what Simeon's view of Christ is, it was very much cross-grain to the first century view of Christ. Most Jews were looking for a revolutionary conqueror who would come on the scene and as a dominant military hero would pronounce himself king, overthrow the Roman government, and bring utopia to Israel. And so very limited view of Christ. But Simeon's view of Christ is powerful. It marveled Joseph and Mary. It cut cross grain to first century Jewish culture and expectation. I want to just briefly move through as we answer this question. Notice, first of all, that Simeon's view of Christ is that Christ was the consolation. It's the word comfort. And notice what it says in verse number 25. The scripture says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. It's the idea of comfort that follows mourning. Have you ever thought about the fact that the word comfort is something of a relative term? In other words, you really can only have comfort if you have first been what? Mourning or sorrowing. Jesus himself would say, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. In specifically, the consolation of Israel prophetically that Simeon was waiting for, longing for, was the comfort of the consolation that would come, get this, to bring resolution to those who were mourning with the guilt of sin. Secondly, Simeon refers to this one who is the Christ as the salvation. Mine eyes, notice if you would, verse number 30, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. This is his reference to Christ as the one who would be the deliverer from the deserved consequences of sin. Get this, you cannot fully, are you seeing the picture develop here as we profile Christ? You cannot fully appreciate who Christ is without a realistic understanding of our sin and the consequences we deserve because of our sin. Any kind of view of Christ that views him outside of his being the savior from sin, the deliverer of sin, is a limited at best and a counterfeit at worst form or view of Christ. So he sees him as the salvation, the one who delivers from the deserved consequences of sin. As Simeon goes on to share with Joseph and Mary further information about the Lord Jesus Christ, notice verse number 32, he is a light to lighten the Gentiles. The use of the word light that Simeon uses here is he is a light. Jesus is a light, get this, to reveal God to the Gentile people. Let me just say this. For a Jewish man to make this statement in the first century was teeth rattling. 
do you mean the Savior is for the Gentiles too? Did you notice what he had said in the previous phrase? Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of how many people? How many of you Gentiles are glad that Jesus saves Gentiles? Okay. He'll be a light, get this, to reveal God to people who were not God's chosen people, Israel. Furthermore, Simeon says, he'll also be the glory of thy people, Israel. This could be a reference to the fact that Jesus is the incarnate glory of God, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament in human flesh. But the idea of glory here, I believe, is this. In the Bible, the word glory was often used to speak of worth that was on someone or an attribute that caused them to be attractive. For instance, Paul said in the New Testament that a woman's hair is her what? glory. It's part of what makes her attractive. In this concept, in this context, what I believe Simeon is saying here, as Jesus, the Christ, is the glory of his people Israel, you know what he's saying? He's saying this, anything attractive about the nation of Israel is a result of Christ. Can I say this about you and me? Anything attractive, anything of any beauty or value in any of us is not because of anything intrinsic to us. It's because of Jesus. Anything that makes us attractive. Then he goes on to say that this child is set. Notice if you would the middle of verse 34. He's set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. As you go back to a couple of passages in Isaiah. And I'll reference these again in a moment. That Simeon is referring to. He's referring to Christ being the chief cornerstone. Jesus himself would teach something of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter number 7, when he said, those who hear my sayings and do not do them, they're like a man who builds his house on what kind of foundation? Sand. But those who hear my sayings and do them, they're like a man who built his house upon the rock. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is who? Jesus Christ. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8, that Jesus is the stone that was laid in Zion by God, the chief cornerstone. And really, here's the conclusion. If you don't build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, you will fall in condemnation and judgment. But if you do build your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ by faith in his finished work, the Bible promises in what Simeon says about Jesus that you will rise again into eternal life. And so he's the stone. Simeon would go on to say that this child, and again, this is all new information for Joseph and Mary. But the Bible says through Simeon's prophecy here that he's a sign which would be spoken against, a sign that directs people to God as the only way. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, if you're going to get to the Father in heaven, there's only one way to go, and it's through Jesus Christ. And notice what Simeon says. Now he begins to come in with some more negative information, if you would, in addition to the positive. Jesus is the sign that would be spoken against. In other words, there's opposition that's going to come. He would be a stigma, Simeon says, as he tells Mary that a 
sword is going to pierce her own soul. And it's indicative of the fact that those who receive Christ and associate their life with him, there is a stigma that will come. Jesus himself said, marvel not if the world hate you. It hated me and it's going to hate you too. A part of our association with Christ. And then I see this as we think further under this first question, what was Simeon's view of Christ That Jesus is the standard, if you would, by which all thoughts would be revealed and by which all men will be judged. He says in the very last statement of our text, it's through Jesus that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. The, The way that the Jews used the term many was not many and then others. It would be as if I said of this room this morning, there are many people in this room. I'm referring to all, but in the Semitic sense, I can say there are many people in this room and I'm referring to everybody. In other words, what Simeon is saying this, what a person does with Jesus determines everything. And it's the focus of the heart, not the externals, not a church membership, not a moral life, not a, not a, a, a good charitable record or whatever it may be, not a baptismal water, not a communion or Lord's table, not a sacrament. That's not what the determining factor is. It's what have you done with Jesus in your heart? So this was Simeon's view of Christ. I was reminded again of a a, a excerpt from a preacher, a Scottish preacher, uh, and a pastor friend of mine said this, Several years ago, he said, any guy with a Scottish accent sounds spiritual. (laughs) I wish I could mimic it. But he was imagining for us how a person gets to heaven. And his whole argument was that it's Christ and Christ alone. The minute you add anything to Jesus, you have a false gospel. It is Christ and Christ alone. And this Scottish preacher imagined for the sake of illustration what it was like for the thief on the cross to have just one, in a few moments, been cursing Christ and then a few moments later recognize who Christ was even in a faint understanding and say, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then the Scottish preacher imagined what it was like. He said, can you imagine what it was like for that Thief, when he made his entrance into heaven and he posed the question that sometimes we use when we're talking to people about how they know they're going to heaven or not. And he said, can you imagine maybe the angel at the gate of heaven saying, so on what basis do you come? Tell me about your justification. He said, he imagined that thief on the cross standing there going, just do what? Why are you here? Tell me about your relationship to the word. And on and on he went. Finally, the angel said, I better go get my supervisor angel. And this is this Scottish preacher playing this whole thing out. And the supervisor angel comes back and he says in in the imaginative, imaginative retelling of this, he asks the thief on the cross, on what basis do you come? And this was his answer. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. What was Simeon's view of Christ? Now, here's the reality. Simeon's view of Christ was not only a surprise to Joseph and Mary, not only did it cut cross grain, 
to the first century Jewish expectations of what the Messiah would be like as they considered a profile. Let me just briefly say to us this morning, Simeon's view of Christ is a stark, specific, and startling picture of Christ in contrast to how many people today view Christ. Think about it, within the broad reaches of professing Christianity, we have those who have a benign Jesus that they want. A Jesus who tolerates everything and stands for nothing. We live in a world where people's view of Jesus is they want a life coach Jesus. Someone who will just help them acquire their goals. We live in a world where some people view Jesus as an economic advisor, Jesus, who wants you to be materially prosperous if his blessing is really on you. We live in a world of people who want a personal trainer, Jesus. A lot of athletes will paint John 3.16 on their face paint. And it's Jesus that helps them do all things, like score touchdowns and slam dunk basketballs and cross the finish line. I'm pretty sure that's not what Paul meant in Philippians 4.13 live in a world of people that want a wise sage Jesus who they can drop a pithy quote from the gospels every once in a while right alongside of their quoting Socrates or Yogi Berra. We live in a world of people who have such a shallow view of Jesus that they view him as a spare tire Jesus and just when I'm in trouble I need him. Or a name drop, social status Jesus is what some people want if it helps me climb a social ladder or close a business deal by talking a little bit about Jesus. That's the kind of Jesus some people want. A seasonal Jesus, Christmas and Easter. Some people want a decorative Jesus that they can hang a picture of on the wall so when guests come over they think, oh, these are Christian people. A renta Jesus. Some people want a... Jesus made in man's image on one extreme. You have the tolerant and the benign Jesus who, as we've already said, stands for nothing and tolerates everything. Or on the other hand, I've met some folks who want a revolutionary Jesus that gives vent to their vindictive and vengeful attitude. Sad to say, many people's view of Jesus is like a cheap, low-quality, foreign-made tool. The first time you put any torque on it, it strips out. The first time you put any pressure on it, it breaks and shatters. When the trials come, a Jesus made in man's image will fall apart. And that's why a right view of the real Jesus is so crucial to life. Give me the Christ of glory. Give me the Christ of glory who's the second person of the Trinity, God of very gods, the everlasting, who willingly took upon himself a robe of sinless human flesh and took upon himself that second nature, that serpent or servant human nature, sinless as it was, virgin born, virgin born in a level of poverty. The foxes of the field have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Give me the Christ of glory. Give me the Christ of Galilee who walked up and down the banks of the Sea of Galilee who demons would cower in his presence and children would come. Give me the Christ of Galilee, who would face off the Pharisees and expose their hypocrisy, and then on the other hand, in contrast to the religious leaders of the day, would take uneducated backwoods fishermen and make them fishers of men. Amen. 
Give me the Christ of Galilee who spoke the words of life and through his truth men are set free. Give me the Christ of Galilee who through his miracles on the bow of a ship and in other places would demonstrate that he was not just a miracle worker, he was the creator who was sovereign over creation. Give me the Christ of Galilee who would heal the sick and give sight to the blind and raise the dead and heal the lepers as a down payment, just a little picture of the fact there's a day coming when he will make all things new. Give me the Christ of Gethsemane who submitted his will to the will of the Father and drank to the fullest the dregs of the wrath of God against sin. Give me the Christ of Gabbatha, the pavement of judgment before Pilate when he witnessed a good profession before Pilate and testified that the very reason he came into the world was to bear witness to the truth. And when Pilate was finished, he could only conclude, I find no fault in this man. Give me the Christ of Golgotha, who willingly stretched out his arms and died as the Lamb of God for the sins of the whole world, bearing your sin and mine in my place. He stood condemned, sealed my pardon with his blood. Give me the Christ of a garden tomb that is empty. The grave could not hold him. That's the Christ I want. That's the Christ this world needs. Not a therapeutic Christ, but a Christ in all of his fullness. And give me the Christ of glory, who now sits at the right hand of his Father making intercession. And soon and very soon, this Christ is coming again to take his people home. And then he will return to rule this earth and his kingdom. But a second question, and I will say with the song, time is now fleeting, the moments are passing. What was the basis of Simeon's view of Christ? You see, there are lots of views of Christ, but the reality of that view is what is its basis? The test of that view. His view of Christ was actually shocking, as we've already mentioned to Mary and Joseph. It cut cross-grain, not just to first century Judaism, but his view of Christ 2,000 years later cuts cross-grain to many people's view of Christ in the 21st century. As I look at the basis for Simeon's view of Christ, and I must hasten through this second point, but I see this. His view of Christ came from the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had told him, you're not going to see death until you see with your own eyes the Lord's Christ. By the way, you study the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel of John in particular, chapters 14 to 17, and you'll find that one of the chief aspects of the ministry of the Spirit of God is to show people Jesus. Not, not to cause many of the excesses that we see in the charismatic movement. That's not the Holy Spirit of God causing that. The Holy Spirit of God, listen, if people are not being pointed clearly and specifically to Jesus, mark it down, the Holy Spirit of God's not at work there. The Holy Spirit of God was the basis of Simeon's view of Christ. May I also say this, that the scriptures 
were the basis of Simeon's view of Christ. Not what some theological professor thought, not what a grandmother or grandfather, not what somebody said. I, I always get nervous when I hear somebody say this. Well, I think God I had a very blunt professor in Bible college says, it doesn't matter what you think. What's the book say? Because that's where we see the reality of Christ. I wish I had time to go into all of this, but Simeon, in just this brief single passage of scripture about his life, makes at least a dozen, a dozen allusions or references to prophetic passages of scripture in the book of Isaiah about profiling Jesus Christ. He is the comforter, the consolation. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. When he refers to Christ as the salvation who's prepared before the face of all people, he's referencing Isaiah chapter 52 and verse number 10. When he refers to the Messiah, Jesus, as the light that would lighten the Gentiles, he's referring to Isaiah 42, verse 6, and Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. When he refers to Jesus, the Messiah, being the glory of his people Israel, he's referring to Isaiah 28, verse number 5, and chapter 60, verse 2, and verse 19. When he refers to Christ as the stone, he's referring to prophecy about Christ in Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 28. When he refers to Christ as a sign and as a standard, he's referring to characteristics given of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter number 11. If you want to know Jesus, right here is the key to know Jesus. The Spirit of God and the Scriptures and it goes without saying, and you kind of see this coming out, and that is this. There was a wonder that Simeon had because of a relationship with God. His knowledge, his appreciation, what he says and what he does is not academic. God help us to never lose our wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scottish theologian James Stewart, here I am, I don't know why I'm falling back on Scots all the time. The Scottish theologian James Stewart said this of Christ. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so congenial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him. And the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, and yet, for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others. Yet, at the last, himself, he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts 
which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. The one who hungered as he sat on the side of a well in Sychar is the bread of life to satisfy man's eternal spiritual hunger. The one who thirsted as he hung on a cross is the one who offers the water of eternal life, which if a man drinks of it, he'll never thirst again. The man who in fatigue sat on the edge of a well or slept in the bow of a storm-tossed ship is the one who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't know about you, but as I contemplate thoughts like that, it's not academic. As I think about the Spirit of God pointing Simeon and giving all of us a better vision of Christ. And I think about the scriptures and how Spurgeon said years ago to preachers, take any text you want and make a beeline for the cross. As I think about that, I think about the beauty, the wonder of that, as James Stewart said, the the mystery of the unity of man and God in the person of Christ. Oh, the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is that he is who he is and that he loves me. A third question, not only what was Simeon's view of Christ, what was the basis, number two, of Simeon's view of Christ, but thirdly and finally, what was the effect of Simeon's view of Christ on his own life and by application on our lives? I'm just going to give these in rapid succession. We draw by implication out of this passage But I want to make the statement of the proposition again, and that is this. A right view of Christ brings rest and resolve and reason to our everyday lives. In Simeon's case, he was called just and devout. Can I say this? That as you look at it, verse number 25, this Simeon, the same was a just man, was a just and devout Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Get this. The thing that brought about the fruit of justness and devotion in his life, that is, devotion in his relationship to God, okay, and justness in his relationship with other people was because he was a man who was regularly, consistently waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. His view of Christ, notice this, produced godliness in the midst of a sin-cursed world. His view of Christ provided comfort in mourning, mourning over the guilt of sin. His view of Christ, this right view of Christ, gave him peace as he faced death. Now think of it. Simeon didn't have all the information that you and I have. Jesus had not gone to the cross yet when Simeon said what he said. Jesus had not been buried in a grave yet and then rose again the third day victorious as Lord of life and death. He had not ascended back to the Father in a glorified state. But he has, and you and I know this now. And if anybody should be able to have death 
facing us and do so with peace, it should be those who have a right view of Christ. And you say, Pastor, you're saying this to a bunch of alive people this morning. I get this, but statistics hold true. Every one of us are going to die. And when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, give me Jesus to take me by the hand as the good shepherd and walk with me in his eternal presence through the valley of the shadow of death and I will fear no evil. Another effect of Simeon's view of Christ is that it gave deliverance from sin. This one, this Christ, was the salvation, the deliverer from sin. I notice this as well. His view of Christ gave him a love for the world that was extraordinary in that day because he recognized that Jesus wasn't just for the Jews but for the Gentiles as well. I want to shock you a little bit. I'm saying that facetiously. When you leave here today and you go back out into this old world and you go to the grocery store and you go to work, you will never cross paths with someone that Jesus doesn't love and for whom Jesus didn't didn't die. Simeon's view of Christ gave clarity in the confusion of pluralism. Simeon's view of Christ, when he referred to him as the glory of his people Israel, the one that made Israel attractive, worth something. In this world of narcissism, when people's self-worth is determined by temporary standards, by financial standing, by what other people think about me, by how much money I have in the bank, however you identify... I want you to understand something, that the only worth that has any eternal value is the worth that Christ puts on you and on me. I am in Christ, and there I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Simeon's view of Christ allowed him not to ignore hurt and adversity that Mary would face, but to identify it, knowing that a reason would be discovered. God always has, God, somebody said this, God is too good to waste suffering on any of his people. He always has a divine purpose that's for our good and his glory. I must close with this. We've got just a few minutes. I want you to notice back in verse number 25, the Bible tells us of Simeon that he was waiting for the conflict. Uh, consolation of Israel. The word waiting means to look for expectantly in order to give a hospitable welcome. He was looking for Jesus to come with great expectation in order to give him a hospitable welcome when he came. And may I say this, in whatever purpose he came. Whether it was as consolation whether it was the one who gives peace and death, whether it was the one who came to deliver from sin, whether it was the one to motivate a greater love for the world, whether it was the one who came to give clarity and confusion from pluralism, whether it was the the aspect of Christ, if you would, that gives worth in a world of cheap standards. Simeon was waiting for Jesus to come. And when Jesus came, it changed everything.
This past week, in both conversation and the trip that I made yesterday over to Durham to see the Sullivans as I passed all the signs for Winston-Salem. And then in a conversation I had Wednesday night, I was reminded of how my life has been affected because of a 21-year-old mother before she ever was a mother, before she was ever a wife, going to a Bible-preaching church in Winston-Salem in 1969 and for the first time in her life hearing the good news of Jesus Christ preached. Sunday services. And the fact that that mother who had tasted a lot of the things of this world heard the gospel, recognized her sinfulness, and that that sin separated from God, her from God, she in faith opened her heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that changed everything. She would from there, after some discipleship, go off to Bible college and meet my dad, and the rest is history. It causes me, in a certain sense, to shudder to think about how different life would be. I wouldn't even be here. To think about how different life would be if it weren't for a 21-year-old girl who said yes to Jesus and in looking expectantly for him when he came, opening her heart and making a hospitable home for him. About a year later, an assistant pastor from that same church would go to the home of my grandparents in Thursday night visitation, knock on their door in a follow-up visit. They would open the door. That assistant pastor would come in, and that assistant pastor would open the Bible. And yet again, he would give the good news of Jesus Christ to my grandparents. Moral people, religious people, giving people, good people, but lost without Christ. And they opened their door that night, not just to an assistant pastor, but bigger than that, the Jesus that assistant pastor represented. And that Christ, the real Christ, has changed everything. And how that set everything up for me as a little boy of almost five years old to be sitting in a revival meeting in Granite City, Illinois, in 1980. And hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Recognized I too was a sinner. And Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who comes to give deliverance from sin. Jesus is the one who gives comfort after the mourning of the guilt of sin. Jesus is the one who gives peace to faith's death. The real Christ, the right view of him, makes all the difference. Now, somebody might be sitting here and saying, but Simeon got to see Jesus. The real Christ with his very eyes is the babe in the arms. <laughs> we shall see Jesus. We haven't seen him yet, but we love him. With the eye of faith, we see him. There's a day coming very soon. If you know Christ as Savior, you will be able to see him face to face. We shall see Jesus. But in the meantime, we live in view of the real Christ. Because the right view of Christ gives rest. It gives resolve. It gives reason as we live this life and its adversities. Father,